This episode is brought to you by Warren Coughlin, CEO coach and founder of Jumpstart Coaching. Now, I wanted to partner with Warren because one of my biggest regrets across my seven years as a CEO was not hiring a coach. And to the best extent possible, I want to prevent others from making that same mistake. Warren focuses exclusively on coaching CEOs running small and medium-sized businesses and has been doing so for over 20 years. And what I particularly love about Warren is the structured approach that he takes to working with CEOs, particularly within those first 90 days of the engagement to ensure that the foundation being built upon is a solid one. Within those first three months, he will help you establish a scorecard containing all of your key numbers in a single place. He'll help you build out a high-performing leadership team, and he'll share with you a proprietary tool to organize your execution plan, which will clearly outline who should do what by when. Best of all, working with Warren is effectively risk-free. If at the end of those first three months you are not happy with the direction of the business, he will give you your money back. If that doesn't say confidence, I don't know what does. On top of all of that, Warren is also offering $3,000 off of his coaching program for listeners of In the Trenches. Just go to warrencoglin.com forward slash trenches to learn more. Coglin is spelt C-O-U-G-H-L-I-N. Hello, everybody. Welcome to In the Trenches. I'm your host, Steve Devitkos. So I am very excited to present you with today's guest, as it's not every day that I get to interview the CEO of a company that I was actually a customer of when I was running my own business. So my guest today is Mike Zanni, and he is the CEO of a company called The Predictive Index. It is one of the most widely used personality profiling tools in the world and is particularly popular among CEOs running small and medium-sized businesses when making hiring decisions. That's certainly how it came across my desk. It's not limited to small and medium-sized businesses, though, as the Predictive Index serves more than 9,000 clients across 142 countries worldwide. Mike has been the CEO of the Predictive Index for about eight years now after having successfully purchased the business from its original founders. Prior to the Predictive Index, Mike successfully purchased, operated, and sold two other companies in unrelated industries, notably the employee wellness and manufacturing spaces. In addition to his experience as a CEO, Mike is also a best-selling author, having published a book called The Science of Dream Teams, a Wall Street Journal bestseller in 2021. Prior to commencing his business career, Mike was actually the coach for the United States Olympic sailing team and was selected as coach of the year in 1996 by the U.S. Olympic Committee. So, at least in my books, Mike officially wins the Most Interesting Man in the World Award. Before we dive in, let me provide you with a friendly reminder that I'm an active investor in search funds and the companies that they acquire. So if you're looking to raise a search fund or if you're looking to purchase a small to medium-sized business yourself, please reach out as I'd love to chat with you. For now though, please enjoy my conversation today with Mike Zanni. Mike Zanni, welcome to the show. It's great to be here, Steve. Thanks for having me. Now, you have a fascinating background as an entrepreneur and a CEO across many different companies. I'd love if you could just briefly walk us through the chronology of your career just to get the context set up. Steve, it's, it's only fascinating from this side, this view. It, it was a weird background uh, in my 20s. Uh, but I, I was trained as a geochemist, uh, was a failed environmental consultant. 
Uh, I was a Naval Academy dropout. So there's a lot of weird stuff in my background, but I, I, I put food on the table uh, in, in my 20s, being a professional sailor and a sailing coach, and was quite fortunate enough to uh, get invited to, the, to coach the 1996 uh, Olympic sailing team. And uh, it was a fantastic, romantic time in my life. Uh, but I did not want to spend 330 days a year on the road. So I, I came off the road and, and worked, uh, had my first real job, you know, something that you got a W-2. And, uh, and I worked for a sailboat manufacturer and fell in love with business. And in doing so, I, you know, sort of the first time in my life realized I was as passionate about business as I was about competing at sailing. Um, so I decided to go to business school. Um, at business school, I learned about a search fund, which was, uh, a, you know, an investment vehicle where you could buy used companies with other people's money. And for the last 20 years, uh, my business partner and I have purchased uh, and run four companies, uh, one at a time. And we, you know, you, you buy it, you fix it, you add value to it, and ultimately you sell it and get your investors a really healthy return. And that has been my career arc. That's fascinating. Can you just tell us, you know, relatively briefly, um, what each of the four companies did and when you bought them, when you sold them, just so we can get uh, a bit more meat around the chronology bone? Absolutely. So company, company number one was a company called Ledco, or Law Enforcement Development Company. And Ledco made rugged docking stations to support hardened computers uh, in vehicle application. Uh, think cop cars, fire trucks, utility trucks. Uh, we ran that company for five years and sold it in, in 09. Um, the next two companies happened concurrently. Daniel and I, uh, we were both having children uh, with our spouses and we were geographically undesirable. So he uh, acquired ExamSoft and ran it. I was an investor. Uh, ExamSoft did examination software. Uh, it powered things like the bar exam. Uh, it also powered a lot of uh, uh, sort of electronic testing in, in the college format. I ran ShapeUp, uh, which was uh, a wellness platform for health plans and large self-insured employers. Uh, that was ultimately purchased by Virgin Pulse, and that management team is still uh, running, running that group. And the fourth company was the Predictive Index, uh, which is, we purchased in 2014 and are still running. It's, and it, what I'm fascinated by is the fact that you started with a partner, you guys separated, and then you guys um, decided to repartner. And that's something that we're definitely going to get into later in the conversation. Before we get there, though, Mike, I was just struck by um, the insight that as a post-exit CEO, you've decided to kind of jump back into the shark tank three times now. I was earlier last week, I was speaking with a fellow post-exit CEO and we were guessing what percentage of post-exit CEOs decide to become a CEO again. And there's no data on this that that either of us was aware of, but our guess was that it was 20% or less, which is to say that the number is low. It's certainly less than half. In light of that, I'm curious, how did you think about that decision? Presumably your first time being a rookie CEO, it took a lot out of you personally and professionally, I presume. 
you made a lot of mistakes, I, I, I suspect. Um, and certainly those mistakes were, were things that you could learn from. But I'm just curious, how did you think about the decision to become a CEO again? And in fact, that's a decision you've made many times. Did you ever consider something else? And what, what pulls you to this path? Actually, D- Daniel and I uh, spent some spent a considerable time thinking about this. We're like, wow, we could be investors. Uh, we could be investment bankers. We could be, um, you know, managers. And we even talked about, do we want to be a manager at a big company uh, or a small company? And we we talked about, did we want to actually have investors in the future? I would we like to buy a smaller company and own 100% of it, or would we like to do a, a bigger opportunity and bring in outside capital? Uh, so we spent a lot of time doing that, but what we really narrowed on was the favorite part of the process was actually running the company for both of us. And we've we've both done that. We get a lot of joy. And yes, you make a ton of mistakes, but if you're not comfortable, I mean, I still make a ton of mistakes. If you're not comfortable with that, you you could never get comfortable with you know, the messy art and science of, of being a manager. Now, in doing um, research for this discussion, I was listening to you talk about um, your experience selling your first company. And that that's actually where I want to go now. So after you sold your first company, you stayed on with the acquirer for roughly a year, just under a year, um, and you helped with the integration process. The reason why I thought this was interesting is because most CEOs listening to this who are looking to sell their small businesses, they fail to appreciate oftentimes that something similar is likely going to be asked of them after they sell their company, which is to say they stay on with the acquirer for at least some period of time. So for this reason, I think it might be instructive for us to talk about your experience. Um, What were some of the most difficult or surprising things about working for the acquirer uh, post-exit? And how would you advise CEOs who are on the verge of selling their companies and are unsure what that transition might look like for them? That's, that's a, a, we could, we could spend an hour here. We'll try, I'll try and, I'll, I'll try and go, go quickly and just hit the highlights. The, the acquirer of Ledco uh, did a, uh, consulting hired a consultant to look at our cultures and our cultures were massively different you know he asked me to be the post acquisition integrator of the two companies so my title was chief operating officer my responsibility was to to integrate the the the, the two organizations both culturally and through process and i i really was energized by this because of a a drive uh, for the success of the team that we built at Ledco. I did not want them to just, you know, run into the strategic acquirer and be gobbled up and then disposed of. Um, and the cultures were very different. But I, I did tell the, the, the founder and his brother, um, you know, they were, they had their name on the side of the door of the building. You know, they were the number one and number two people in the in the hierarchy i was number three and i said if you want to run uh you know uh, an advanced management playbook if you want to explore how great this combined company can be i'm in but if you want to run this company the way you've been running the company it's your prerogative to do that but i will stay through this integration and then i'm out of here and we didn't know the answer to that question 
Um, but it, it did become clear sort of six months in um, that the strategic buyer was more interested in running their old playbook than in learning something new, which really made it clear that uh, there wasn't room for me in the, in the organization. While we're still, we're actually still good friends, uh, but you know, we, we shouldn't be business partners. Are there any generalizable lessons that you extracted from that? It certainly sounds like, um, you know, the importance of the two cultures being mended together is, is certainly something that shouldn't be overlooked. I mean, what is the generalizable takeaway from your experience? Is it that selling CEOs should be wary of similar transition periods? Is it that, you know, front load the cultural diligence? I mean, how would you advise CEOs on the verge of exiting or at least considering exiting where let's say on one hand, they could take a million dollars less on their exit and have no transition period. But on the other hand, they could take a million dollars more and maybe stay for 12 months. I mean, it's, it's a broad question, a borderline unfair one, but I'm just curious how you might advise a CEO you know, who, who might come to you with that type of question. So negotiations when you're selling your company aren't exactly time for open, honest, you know, get down to brass tacks sort of conversations. People tend to be more guarded with information, not always, but post-close, you really need to break through that. And when, um, you know, the, the, the president CEO of, of the acquiring company and I sat down, I was like, his name was Joe. I was like, Joe, this is your business. This is your baby. You know, run it the way you want to run it. I go, don't, don't do something you don't want to do because you bought us. I go, the company's a great company. The product's a great product. But having those honest conversations, and it's probably going to happen post-close, it might happen pre-close, but force that issue. Find out what people really want. And, you know, the, the answers will fall out of that open, honest dialogue. And you shouldn't force it. It People, if especially, you know, senior people who've run something, they're not going to suffer through a lot of uh, not liking something. You know, you're going to have to really get to get to the answer of, can I make this sustainable for me or not? And the other person has to ask the same question, the other team, you know, is, is this how we want to run our collective organization or not? Let's talk a little bit about Predictive Index, which is the company that you're currently running. You first purchased this company in 2014. And at the time, you described it as largely a service business. You said that you only had one technologist working in-house. Now, I'm struck by the contrast vis-a-vis uh, -vis what Predictive Index looks like today and, and what it looked like in 2014 when you bought it. Because now... You know, I, I assume I'm pretty safe in saying that predictive index can be more accurately described as like a product-led software platform. And you shared with me that over half of your company, or roughly half of your company, is now actively developing product. So, I mean, that's a that's a pretty major transition. Um, at the risk of asking you too general of a question, which I'm sure you could also talk about for an hour, can you just share with us some of the more challenging or surprising aspects of navigating a newly purchased company through such a fundamental transition? Yeah, it was it was a massive, massive transition. So this was a 60, 60, 60-year-old 60 family-run business. And it had not done a lot of change. It was fundamentally similar to 
what it looked like in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, um, I think the only difference is they had hired someone to build an online surveying tool. So there was a piece of software, but it was not maintained by them. It was, it was built and running in the background. So when you come into a 60-year-old company that has not been making uh, in, investment to change themselves to the times, for the last 15 years, we had so much, you know, the list of things that we had to do was massive. I mean, it was, it was everywhere. We had to change almost all of the staff. We had to completely change the income statement because we were going to start spending a lot of money on development. We had to change the hearts and minds of our distribution channel. Uh, as we were going to, because all change brings a little bit of pain with it. And we had to fundamentally break things in, in order to rebuild them. And, you know, we've been in this project for eight years and we, uh, we're still fixing some of the things that we fundamentally, fundamentally broke. Uh, but really with the, the guy, the objective of how do we build a true software company and now a product-led software company uh, from a company that was really just a scientifically based behavioral assessment. Oh, there's there's so much in there uh, that that we could dive into. Was this transition a key part of your original investment thesis? So said another way, on the way in, were you guys certain that you wanted to turn this into basically a product slash software business? I don't think that we knew how much software we would be building. So four years in, we made the decision instead of selling the company to uh, sort of do a little bit of a recap. We took some growth equity. Uh, we paid our original vet investors back um, a little more than their um their initial uh, buy-in. And we said, we're gonna go for another, another ride. You know, there's a lot to do here. There's a lot of potential in the company. Um, and when we made that decision, we made the decision to take a really big swing. And that big swing was about developing a lot of software and competing in the broader HR technology landscape. And there's a lot of money, both venture and growth equity, being poured into the HR tech landscape. So it was that decision four years ago that that really said, you know, you know, go big or go home on this on this particular decision of building software. I mean, given the magnitude of the changes that you passed through, I'm curious how you thought about when to start executing on these changes. So let's rewind to 2014. You know, established wisdom among those pursuing entrepreneurship through acquisition is, you know, big ears, small mouth in the first six months, don't make too many changes, um, diagnose before you prescribe, et cetera. Um, how do you reconcile that generally accepted wisdom with a situation like this, where you went in understanding that the magnitude of changes that you'd have to make would be material? Like, how did you and your partner think about when to start executing on these massive changes versus taking, you know, a reasonably light touch in your first X months of operations? <laughs> Big ears, small mouth. I, 
I think I may have heard that before. Uh, I certainly don't believe in that. Um, I think it might be decent advice uh, for a first-time searcher. Um, having, you know, Daniel and I having done, you know, three previous companies, we were clients of the Predictive Index for eight years before we bought the company. Um, we tried to buy the Predictive Index in 09, so we had been thinking about it for five years. We had, uh, <laughs> we probably had small ears, big mouth, two <laughs> mouths, and we were far more aggressive in the changes that we made with the Predictive Index than we were at our previous three companies. And part of that was the confidence. You know, we had three good exits. Um, and we're like, we're, I think we're pretty good at this. And I, I think we know what we're doing. And we had a strategic roadmap that was pretty clear. So, you know, it was like a, a, a professional builder coming into a, a rehab project. You know, what, what's the first thing they do? They, they bring out the dumpsters and people come in with sawzalls, <laughs> start ripping stuff out. Um, and that process happens in days, not weeks. Um, and that's kind of what we did. Let's move on to personality profiling tools because, I mean, this is, these are tools, you know, both predictive index as well as others that I used when I was making hiring decisions, when I was um, looking at the composition of teams. I know so many of our listeners uh, either utilize similar tools or are contemplating utilizing similar tools. So, you know, naturally, you know, your, your view on some of these questions is going to be deeply colored by your experience as the CEO of Predictive Index. But um, talking about personality profiling tools more broadly, you know, it's it's pretty well established at this point to use these types of tools to hire within, you know, white collar knowledge worker type environments. I'm curious about, you know, blue collar environments at the risk of overgeneralizing. So if somebody listening to this, let's say is running a roofing company or a landscaping company or something like that, would you recommend that they use personality profiling tools like predictive index for roles like these and, and why or why not? Oh, absolutely. It, it, it's equally as applicable for blue and white collar. I think some of the tools out there are too heavyweight for blue collar uh, or high volume. Uh, there are tools like the Hogan assessment, 90 minutes. It, it's, it's great science. I have nothing bad to say about Hogan. Other than if it takes 90 minutes and it's $500 in assessment, you're not gonna scale it across an organization. So people keep that type of assessment in the C-suite uh, or VP and above. But if you're gonna scale this across a massive company, I mean, our client, we have Subway as a client. Uh, they use it to identify uh, franchisees, to identify whether you're gonna typically be a one you know, store owner or a multi, uh, a multi-unit uh, franchise. And my, my favorite on this is Freeport McMoran is one of the largest mining companies in the world. And I had an opportunity to speak with their chief people officer. And they said, look, we have a, we have a mine in Peru, which is 200 miles away from a city that has an airport. These uh, mostly, mostly men they're hiring the men are coming in with a third grade education. We have a language barrier and 
you know, at a third grade education, you have no written skills. They're not coming in with the resumes. He says, we use your behavioral and cognitive assessment. And that is the only thing we use. And they basically have like five jobs. You know, there'll be like management track, heavy equipment operator, you know, manual labor. And they're using the behavioral tools to, you know, sort of to triage and direct these individuals' careers, uh, if you could call it a career. But mining would be about as blue collar as you get. Um, so the tools work at all levels. It, it really is up to you know, leadership to determine how would you like to use these tools, um, given your, you know, the size of your company and the complexity of, of your labor force. So in utilizing these types of tools, there's like the blue collar, white collar spectrum. Um, but there's also the, in, you know, role done largely individually versus role done as part of the, as part of a team type spectrum. So, you know, certainly when I was using uh, predictive index, uh, I used it in the context of building teams, but I'm curious what about for jobs that are done largely individually? I mean, are personality profiling tools applicable for these types of roles? And for for people making these types of hiring decisions, how does the hiring manager or the CEO know what type of personality profile is best for any given role if they don't really have any precedent? Yeah, I'm going to take the second half of that uh, first. I, I, I really feel that there are some positions that are behaviorally narrow and there are some positions that are behaviorally open. So let's take, let's take a sales role, um, high volume sales role. That is behaviorally narrow. You can determine you know, which behavioral profiles will do better given the nature of that sales role. And you should be hiring pretty critically to those benchmarks. You could take another position, which is really open. Let's take product you know, development um, for software. You can be successful at product development in software with almost any behavioral profile. And what's, what's more important is knowing how many people you have in that group or team or unit of that behavioral profile, because you wouldn't wanna fill up 20 product developers all with the same profile because you'd have like behavioral, you know, homogeneity um, and you'd have homogeneity of thought. Um, so what you really wanna make sure is that you just have healthy heterogeneity. Um, and we actually provide all the benchmarking tools so that people can figure out uh, is, the, is the position open or narrow? Uh, and what does the team dynamic look like? But let's, let's, let's take the, the, the piece of Okay, I'm an individual contributor. The position I'm in is open. They did no screening uh, for me to, to take this role. However, my boss should know what they've got in me. They should know what is my behavioral, uh, what are my behavioral preferences so they know how to manage and motivate me as that individual contributor. And I, in turn, may want to know the behavioral profiles of my boss so that I can successfully manage up um, to give my boss 
what they need. Because um, one of the mantras that I love to tell people is, it, this is about modifying, learning how to modify yourself to, to, to satisfy the needs of the person you're working with, talking to, uh, influencing, so that you can uh, both, both be successful. I want to ask you a bit more of a personal question. Um, I mean, naturally, I, I think I'm pretty safe in assuming that you've used the predictive index on yourself. Um, and you're obviously a very successful entrepreneur and CEO. And so, you know, without being too humble, I'd be so curious based on your own predictive index profile, like what within your profile, if anything, is suggestive or predictive of your success as an entrepreneur or CEO? Where, like, where does the magic reside, so to speak? You know, I actually think the magic may be that Daniel and I complement each other. That, um, you know, I have a very entrepreneurial profile. So, and it's also tends, my profile tends to be, uh, it's, it's called persuader. It, it tends to be very verbal and communicative. So it's not surprising that of the two of us, Daniel's like, you're the front guy. I'm the behind the scenes guy. But I, 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 I oh, oh, nor is it, should it be surprising that both of us have this more entrepreneurial threads that you'd go do something as crazy as a search fund four times. But I, I really think it's, it's when, if you were on my board and you were looking at Daniel and I and you know, know what I know about the predictive index, you might say, wow, aren't they a nice complement of each other? I'm really glad they get along, uh, but they, bring, they each bring something the other doesn't. Um, and and, and that, is, that is really nice to know about your senior team. So it's more about the complementarity of your respective profiles as opposed to your individual profile containing you know, some small list of characteristics that are predictive of success as an entrepreneur. That, that, that is, that's right. And if you were, let's just say you were a prospective investor and I came to you uh, with my search fund and my search fund idea, and you were like, great. And then you look at my profile and you, you may be like, I wonder who uh, is going to be Mike's, you know, data driven side or, attention to detail driven side or even contrarian to make sure that you know I might be all throttle and you might be like who's gonna who's gonna have their foot on the gas pedal um and and that's a fair question for you to ask and you might not see it right away but when you get to the operating company so we find a company you're keen you you invest but you might say hey let's let's make sure we take time to invest in a in a CFO or or a, a strong operator is number two uh, to compliment me. Not that I'm bad at operations, um, but it's just my, my profile would suggest that that would benefit me to have a little bit of a check uh, for that. So I, I have to ask you this question in light of what you just said, and I am speaking on behalf of the investors listening uh, to this. Um, if a acquisition entrepreneur approached you today to invest in their search fund. And let's say that this is not a partnership. This is a single individual entrepreneur. And of course, they don't yet know what business they're they're going to buy. 
and you ran the per, the predictive index on them. I'm I'm so curious. Like, what would you look for in their results? Is there such thing as a profile that might be more suggestive of success than another profile? Is there a type of profile you would look at and say, you know, based on this alone, no way, I'm not investing in this person. The reason why I ask this is because as search fund investors, um, we are making a decision in when deciding to invest in a search on the basis of very limited information. And the, some of my peers in the investor ecosystem have tried using personality profiling tools like this in the past, but they've never really stuck for any prolonged period of time. So uh, at the risk of asking you a borderline unfair question, I'd be so curious to hear your, your response to this. The, uh, we did a study uh, for a search fund investor, which I cannot name, and uh, we had a large enough N to actually do the study. And the good news, search fund entrepreneurs can be successful with almost any behavioral profile. Now, some are going to struggle at the deal generation um, because that is, uh, th there's there's a little bit of a sales function mm -hmm. uh, in in dealer de depending on how you source deals. Not everyone does it the same way, or should they? Uh, but some struggle with 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 deal flow, um, wh whereas they might be incredible operators post closing, or maybe even incredible negotiators once they uh, get past. Uh, uh, letter of intent or getting to letter of intent. Um, and interestingly, my behavioral pattern was one of the least represented. Um, but when, when you pair it with Daniels, uh, it all of a sudden, it made a lot of sense. Um, you know, and I was, I was good at deal origination. I was good at discussions, um, getting to close. Um, and most of the search fund, uh, successful search fund entrepreneurs looked more like Daniel. Um, his pattern is that of a strategist mm -hmm. uh, in, in using our, our vernacular. Um, so we have, we, have many private, we have many private equity and venture capital clients. Um, and it, you, you can in fact uh, very similarly be uh, a successful private equity partner or venture capital partner with almost any profile. So it tends to be a very open, um, it tends to be a, a, a very open position. There, there are some profiles that I would suggest would, would struggle more. And so if I were the investor, I would, I would just know that and say, here are the struggles that you're going to have and see how they respond um, to push themselves out of their comfort zone to, to deal with those challenges. This episode is brought to you by Kane Crossing. The Q of E report is one of the most important sources of information for prospective purchasers and their investors. And as a result, the firm that you select to perform it is one of the most important decisions that you will make as a prospective purchaser. That's why I'm excited to partner with Kane Crossing. I've actually read through and analyzed and relied upon several of their actual Q of E reports in my capacity as an investor, and as a result, can personally attest to the quality of the work that they do. 
Unlike any other QOV provider that I'm aware of, Cane Crossing often co-invests alongside their buyers, which aligns their interests with yours in a way that I just haven't seen anywhere else. Over the past 12 months alone, they've completed 61 QOV projects with a combined transaction value of over a billion dollars. Though it's worth noting that their median transaction value is about $10 million in enterprise value, which puts them comfortably in the range of most small business buyers. And the team brings big four experience and capabilities. After all, the two co-founders met while both were working at KPMG. But importantly, they're able to offer these capabilities at a much lower price than a big four provider ever could. Cane Crossing is offering a special discount to listeners of In the Trenches. Just go to canecrossing.com, Kane is spelled C-A-Y-N-E, and scroll down to the contact form on their homepage. Enter the offer code TRENCHES, and you will get a full $2,000 off of your QOV engagement with them. Again, that is canecrossing.com. So would it be accurate to say that, let's say as an investor, we ought to use these tools less to make the investment decision, yay or nay, and more to try to ascertain where any individual entrepreneur might require the most help? Exactly, exactly. So when I tell um, Bain, Bain Capital is a client, and um, I, I, I landed them as a client early in this, uh, in this process, and I was, I was getting involved with private equity just to know what is the sales pitch in private equity. But because they're such a big brand name, I got, actually got involved a little post-sale uh, post and the implementation. And one of the things, it's we're not gonna tell you to, so if in due diligence, we're not gonna tell Bain Capital to do the deal or not. We are gonna tell Bain Capital, here are the gaps on that senior team that you need to be aware of so when you do the deal, if you do the deal, uh, you know, here are the modifications to the senior team you may want to consider, and here's how your board members are going to fit in with the rest of the team. And it's just such, it's, it's so much easier of a conversation to discuss gaps during due diligence than it is six months after deal closing. Because if you talk about gaps six months after closing, there's a hint of, am I failing? Am I not doing something right? So, um, of the entrepreneur, and 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 that parallel in the search fund world uh, is just what you said: is is knowing what the gaps are and how to help them. So I. I recently took uh, the predictive index test again. Um, I had been a client when I was running my own company, but I took it again in preparation for this conversation. And this might sound like a very weird thing to take away from that experience. But when I was evaluating my results, I was struck by how applicable a tool like this could be in our personal relationships. So nothing to do with our vocation, but let's say our spousal relationship, relationship with close friends, relationships with parents, siblings, whatever. Um, have you used it in any personal relationships? And if so, like, what have you learned from that experience? I, I use it in almost all of my personal relationships. Um, and it, 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 is, it is the number one thing that people tell me, they go, wow, you should really create a dating uh, application for this, for this science. Um, 
it, it's really just about how to communicate with another person. Once you realize that the behavioral science can give you like a decoder ring on how to uh, understand how to work with other people, you almost feel blind without it. Now, as you get, as, as you really get good with the science, you don't always actually have to assess someone. Um, like I know how, I, I, I know the profile of my child, even though we've never assessed the child um, by observation. Um, so now obviously I spend a lot of, a lot of time with my, with my child, my children, you know, I, I, I would say that, you know, you, you can, you can get low resolution um, understanding in the personal relationships. Um, but, you know, those, those relationships, you can also ask them, you're like, if you know the frameworks, you can be like, do do I, does my low attention to detail annoy you, dear? <laughs> <laughs> and you might be like, yeah. But my, my favorite example of this is I, I uh, married a woman that I met at, at business school. Um, we, you know, lived together for a year and a half. I asked for her hand in marriage. We went to marital counseling. And one of the questions they asked in marital counseling was, how do you handle your finances? And they asked a question about risk tolerance. And I didn't know the answer. I didn't know how she was going to answer. I was like, wow. And then we answered completely opposite on, on this risk aversion question. And I was like, a behavioral science would have told us that in five minutes. Whereas after a year and a half and being committed to a lifetime together, I didn't know the answer. So there are certain, there are certain things you can't assess uh, properly without um, external tools like risk. Where do you find it most applicable in your personal relationships? I mean, presumably you guys, um, as a couple went through this, you evaluated your results, but I suspect this is not a one-time thing where you had an hour conversation about it and then kind of forgot about it. Would it be in like conflict resolution or are there any kind of specific domains in your personal relationship where you find these tools most frequently used or most helpful? Yeah, managing my teenagers <laughs> without hesitation. Uh, it, it, it's it's teenagers and parents struggle that the issue is always more important to the child, and the relationship is always more important to the parent. So there's there's a huge asymmetry in how you approach negotiations. Kids are all in; they negotiate like terrorists. Walmart, you know, they because the issue is more important than the relationship. So in that asymmetry, what you need to do is you need to go into their headspace. Like, how does my child think? What's important to them? How can I bring the nature of this discussion to them? How can I use the right you know, examples or analogies? Or you know, is, is this child data-driven or, or not? And like, like my, my youngest son is a pattern called individualist. You know, own, they have their individualists have their own North Star. If, if that child is not bought into something, it is not going to get done. So the whole, the whole parenting is getting them to buy in. So this, is, this has been hugely valuable um, in, in, in managing teenagers. And I, I, fortunately, I think we have a really strong, healthy relationship. Um, but my, my wife and I coach each other on this approach 
beforehand to say, okay, what's the best tactic here uh, with child A versus child B? Um, so if it works in, in managing teenagers, it can work for it can work for anything. That's right. Uh, do people's profiles, like in your experience, do people's personality profiles change over time? So for example, if I took the PI test in my 20s, in my 30s, in my 40s, would you expect the same results to be produced each time? You know, I, I think that uh, is contingent on what, what tools you're using. Part of, part of validation is uh, test retest uh, repeatability. Um, so they're designed not to. Um, however, there, there are things that, that, that creep over time. I'll give you an example. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm 53. You know, people, as they approach their mid 40s, they start, um, they start working on their, uh, their blind spots. And they may over ascribe uh, how they're doing at managing their blind spots. And if you assess someone uh, at 30, uh, and then you assess them again at 45 or 50, they might overascribe. oh, I have much better attention to detail than I did when I was 30. And, and maybe they do, and it's, it's self-coached, but their behavioral preferences are probably the same. They're just, um, they're sort of misinforming the assessment uh, because they're overascribing uh, the attention that they're paying to working on those, uh, let's just say, you know, blind spots or, or uh, caution areas. Um, but I think, I think for the most part, your behavior, the behavioral scientists say, you start reaching your late teens, your behavioral preferences are, are pretty locked in and consistent. You're not gonna go from an introvert to an extrovert after 19, as an example. Right. I want to transition to some of the lessons that you've learned as a CEO, both as the CEO of Predictive Index, but also your CEO experience more broadly. And where I want to start is hiring. I mean, this is a question that is top of mind or an issue, I should say, that's top of mind for substantially every CEO listening. Um, and where I want to start is actually a framework that I came across in doing research for this conversation. You have a really interesting framework that I've heard you use a few times that you call head, heart, and briefcase. So I'd love for you to just tell us a bit more about that framework. What does it mean? And then if you could perhaps share with us, like where within that framework do most hiring mistakes tend to take place? Yeah, head, heart, and briefcase. It, it, today it should fairly be called head, heart, backpack because no one carries a briefcase anymore. That's right. The, the, the briefcase represents uh, your curriculum vitae, your resume. This is all of the things that you've done to get there, all of the skills and people over ascribe to the briefcase. I mean, most interview processes are all around the, the resume. Most people won't even go to an interview without having a resume in hand because they're just hammering away at the briefcase. The head and the heart are two other aspects that most people ignore. The head, uh, this will be your, you know, your behavioral profiles, your cognitive capabilities, um, and it, it, your heart, this will be your value system, your ethics, uh, how you may fit into, uh, or not, uh, culture. Um, so what we coach people to do is let the 
assessments uh, do a lot of the work for the head, you know, behavioral cognitive uh, assessments. And there are other assessments that you, that, that people use, um, things like emotional intelligence and, and grit, uh, but also spend some time in the heart, spend some time interviewing how this person is going to fit into your culture or onto this team, uh, given their, their tendencies, their values, um, things that they feel are important and downweight the briefcase. Now, there are some positions. If I was going to be the, the head of research at Moderna, you know, you need all three things. You need head, heart, and briefcase. Um, and that's a tough job, right? You know, you have to understand FDA approval process, and there are things that you can't look past. But for a lot of the jobs we hire, people overweight briefcase, they get it wrong, and, and a lot of the briefcase stuff can in fact be taught, trained, developed in a very short period of time. What you really care about is upweighting head and heart. So if we take each of these components of the framework in turn, briefcase is reasonably straightforward to evaluate in that, you know, the resume is right in front of you. You can evaluate it on its surface. I think I heard you say head can be evaluated uh, largely through tools like predictive index. I'm curious, as a hiring manager yourself, what are some of the questions or tools or frameworks that you use to evaluate the heart component of that framework? You know, we actually, we train uh, internally, we have, um, we have cultural evaluators that we've, that we've trained. So we, we have um, not only, uh, you know, a, a cultural uh, theme, but we also have a leadership framework. They have cute names like threads and fabric, but they, those are acronyms standing for uh, all the stuff behind it. We train people to um, ask questions and we've developed a question suite around our culture. Now, if I was hiring for your company, um, so I wasn't as indoctrinated in the culture. I mean, I could, uh, talk to you, I could, uh, read about it, but my, my favorite, my single favorite question is, you know, why X, you know, why the predictive index or why Acmeco? And when someone comes up, well, well, I, you know, I live five miles from here and you're a really great employer. And uh, I wanted to work for a really great employer that was close to home. And I'm like, wow, you, you picked us for geographic proximity. Bad answer. Versus, you know, I've been, I've been snacking on a lot of your uh, shared content and I, I'm in love with the product. I think it's so applicable in life. It's it's really meaningful. I love your mission. And, you know, it's, it's just something that would be really inspiring to work here. Like just this, how someone approaches the why work here um, will tell you a lot about how they value your company, how they value your product, um, what they value. Um, but, but really it's, it's about structured interviewing as opposed to unstructured interviewing and prepping the people in your company to ask that question the right way, specifically to your organization. So, you know, I'm talking to the guy who runs a company aimed in part at preventing other people from making hiring mistakes. So I have to ask you about some of the hiring mistakes that you've made 
uh, either recently or otherwise, and maybe what generalizable lessons you've extracted from those hiring mistakes? Well, no one gets it right 100% of the time. Um, you know, I think if you're if you're doing it above 80% uh, right, you're, you're, you're sort of best in class and 90% is, is off the hook good. Like that's, that's what you should be shooting for. Now, there's something that we can learn from the Europeans. The Europeans have, uh, or most European countries have a six month honeymoon period where when you hire someone, uh, you have to make up your mind whether you want to keep them uh, at the six month mark. And if you keep them past six months, you kind of have an employee for life. If you, uh, not in every European country, but in many, and this is sort of lifetime employment. So the, the Europeans, because of this sort of lifetime employment uh, concept have gotten really good at evaluating talent in the first six months. Because when, when you hire, you know, say you're at 80%, you're aspiring to get to 90%, that still means 20% of the time you didn't hire the right person. You didn't get who you were think you were, you, 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 you were getting, or you just missed something blatantly. You have to identify that. So we, we are maniacal about assessing people in the first month, the first three months, and by month five, you know, we, we actually pay our recruiters on performance at month six. We don't want them to just get us warm bodies. We want us to get, they, we want them to get us high performing uh, people at month six. And you, you can design the organization to, um, to do that. Now, I mean, everyone makes hiring mistakes. I think, um, I think my worst hiring mistake, I, I, we, hired, we hired someone who had two jobs and uh, was, a, was a coach at the local track team or a track and cross country team. <laughs> so we did a really bad job of vetting, uh, of, of vetting that. Um, and uh, we, we were paying someone for a high, highly compensated job who was, who was really just the local track coach. I love it. Um, <laughs> it happens. You know, um, I've heard you talk about in the past, this idea of modifying yourself as a leader, uh, including your leadership style, your communication style, to try to align those things to the personalities of the person, you know, with whom you're trying to communicate. So for example, if you're trying to communicate to a direct report that tends to respond to logic, you know, you'll use uh, a more logical argument in maybe persuading them to um, do something to get on board with a certain initiative, whatever the case may be. If you're speaking to someone who responds to more emotional pleas, maybe you'll kind of turn turn up that knob, uh, so to speak. Uh, that makes all that makes good intuitive sense to me. I guess the the question that I have is, in the process of modifying yourself to try to align your style with the style of the person on the other end of that conversation. How do you ensure that you don't lose your own authentic leadership style? Like, how do you strike a balance between being, you know, on one hand, authentically yourself, but on the other hand, you know, sufficiently pliable to ensure that you get through to the people who respond to different types of encouragement or communication styles? 
That's an interesting question. Um, I, I really feel that you know true authenticity is is not just on um, the type of modifications that I'm talking about. As as an example, Steve, I I, I view that you are um, less extroverted than I am and more data driven than I am. Um, I haven't seen your behavioral profile, so I don't know that to be true for a fact. But if I let's say it is true, and if I were managing you. I would give you the courtesy of an agenda and I would be prepared before I made decisions to look at um, all the facts, possibly a lot of the facts that you bring up that I wasn't thinking about. Now, that's the level of modification I'm talking about. Now, in doing that consistently with you, I don't think I'm being inauthentic mm. because how how we how I ultimately make decisions, my value set, the things that I believe in, um, the things that I upweight versus downweight, I don't really think changes. But I'm just giving you the respect of saying, I understand that these things are important to you, and I want to be successful working with with you, um, and I want you to be happy working with me. Um, because that happiness will probably bring longevity, um, and, uh, and, and lack of churn. And hopefully if we get into a rough patch that, uh, you know, flight won't be your first thought, but will be, um, you'll fight through some of those. So we have more time to work on core issues. So I, I do think that, that, that authenticity is, is, is not the level I'm like, don't modify your ethics, your values, um, and you know the the core to how you make decisions. Really modify your approach to work to the extent that you can to work with some people. Now, I, I will say there, Steve. There are times that there are certain behavioral patterns that I struggle managing um, because I can't modify that much, um, and at least I know that going in. Um, because it, it's, it's, it takes energy and effort to modify. If I had to modify on all four behavioral dimensions and had to do this a lot with a direct report, we would be pretty unsuccessful. Like it's, that's hard to sustain. That's so interesting. So can you give us, um, you said you're a persuader. So what's an example of a person, the personality profile that a persuader generally has a, a tough time managing? Uh, there's a, uh, there's a pattern called guardian. Um, uh, you would be, you would be uh, on opposite sides of all four behavioral spectrum. The, I had a guardian lawyer. I loved a guardian lawyer. Kept me out of trouble. Uh, was very professional. Uh, very buttoned up. Very tight on knowledge of the law in their area of expertise. But not many entrepreneurial bones in their body. And so I could work with this person in a law environment. But if this was my direct report and I had to work with this person, you know, mul multiple hours a week on mission critical items, um, it, would, it would be difficult. Um, and it, it wasn't so difficult that I couldn't manage the person you know, as you know, with the amount of legal work I was doing, but if that legal work had a 10, tenfold increase, it might have. 
So if you have an open position that let's say demands a certain personality profile, or at least a certain personality profile lends itself most appropriately to that position. But let's also suppose that that personality profile in question is one that conflicts with yours as the hiring manager. You know, what is someone to do in that situation? Is, is that a reason to not make the hire? You know, do you have that person report into somebody else? Um, do you just tailor uh, the extent to which you guys communicate? I mean, how should a hiring manager think about that type of situation? Yeah, that is very specific to the to the nature of the team. I was certainly answering that question uh, from the perspective of a CEO managing, you know, the senior most managers in the organization. Um, I do think, uh, say, if you were a sales manager and uh, maybe you had a hunter, farmer, and onboarding team, so you were managing three three teams, and one of those teams was filled with patterns that were kind of, you know, very different from the manager. I, I believe you can build some structure around that to, to, to make it work. Um, so uh, the answer is if, if it's the right fit for the role, uh, how should we manage that role if it can't be you? I would still hire the role, um, but I would, I would work with said manager, and that manager might be me, on, on what are the workarounds to do this? Maybe it's a dual reporting relationship. Uh, maybe it's a, 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 a team and more of a team environment um, could even be, um, some coaching for both of us. Mm -hmm. In the past, I've heard you say that, um, when you purchased your first business in 2004, so we're going way back, you said, um, you completely messed up talent evaluation during the due diligence process. And as a result, your first two years were very difficult. Um, that comment really resonated with me. Um, so I'm curious, knowing what you know now, I mean, obviously you're armed with a lot more knowledge and experience than you were back then. Uh, if you could buy a business all over again, knowing what you know now, like what would you do differently specific to talent evaluation during the due diligence process? And I'm asking you that because um, it's often really hard for prospective buyers to even speak with employees before closing. Sellers are, are often reticent to give prospective buyers that access. So whether you got you know, no access, limited access, or full access, you can choose anyone you want. What would you do differently specific to talent evaluation before making a purchase or investment decision? That, that is a really interesting question. So let's just say you had no ability to get personal information. You had a, a, a seller who was paranoid about uh, anyone being pulled into the tent about said transaction. Now, if, if that's the case, I'm, I'm still okay with that. So I have zero view into culture. I have zero view into you know, talent. I, the reason I'm more comfortable now is because I would just move a lot faster. I would take my two years of pain and I would make it three to six months of pain. And I would move much faster much more effectively and a lot with a lot more confidence in making those changes. Now, so that's the, you get no view, but let's just say you have a more open-minded seller and they are letting you in. I would do behavioral um, profiling of the senior, at least the senior team uh, and, and run, run some team dynamic reports to know uh, 
you know, what dynamic is going to be reporting and, and is managing your macro pieces of the business. I, I would also look at each role by role, the behavioral profile of the people in those roles. And I would tend to look at a lot of their employee experience surveys or engagement surveys or 360 review data um, if, if that were available. And the larger the company, the, the, the more likely they're going to have a lot of the survey data, but also the harder to change. The smaller the company, the less likely they're going to have any of that data, uh, but the easier it is to change. And how are you looking at this data? So for example, are you looking at it through the lens of, do I buy the company or not? Are you looking at it through the lens of, hey, in my first six months, I obviously need to hire this role with this personality profile. Uh, so that would be kind of part A. And then part B is, what would you do if you find yourself looking at a company with not necessarily a toxic culture, but let's call it like a, a less than optimal culture. Do you view that as a red flag, I should stay away? Or do you view that as an opportunity saying, hey, if I put some basic cultural hygiene in place, I can really make this a really special place to work? Oh, oh the much with, with their second question, it's, it's much the latter. That you can use that awful culture as a fulcrum um, even if you do an okay job, you're going to look great by comparison mm. and use, use that, that leverage of this is how we used to do things. This is how we're going to do things going forward. Now, what that does is if you want to run that playbook, you better not have the seller around yeah, because you're going to be trashing them, uh, on every corner. Um, and, and you may not literally be trashing them, but effectively when you are using the juxtaposition of how we used to do it to how we're going to do it, um, it, will, it will feel and seem that way. So I would, I would make note to be like, we don't need as much of your, your time um, at post-close. Um, and, and some people aren't comfortable with that. Now getting to your first question of like, would I do the deal or not? I, I almost certainly would almost always do the deal. My one reservation is if I ran into a company where I felt that those people were mission critical to, to doing stuff going forward, that they were the only people who could do that. Uh, and I, I haven't run into a lot of companies like this, but you can imagine there might be some product companies that the, the, the product team and how they think about product is so critical that if you lost everyone, you know, most of your IP would walk out the door. Um, I, I imagine that was the case, you know, with, with Tesla seven years ago, that if, if you're like people who are trying to figure out uh, autonomous driving and the electrification of vehicles, some of it you could figure out with a complete loss of of your talent pool, but some of it you would you would have just written off a lot of value. I want to um, circle back to something that we touched on earlier in our discussion, which is the experience that you've had working with a partner. And um, I want to double click on this issue because you've got a very unique perspective on working with partners because 
As you mentioned, you purchased and ran your first business with a partner. You purchased and ran your second business on your own, and your partner did the same. And then you guys decided to kind of repartner uh, for business number three, which is where you find yourselves now. Um, so I've got a bunch of questions for you on this. And many folks listening to this are contemplating taking the entrepreneurial plunge. And many of them are asking the question, should I do this with a partner? Should I do it on my own? Um, so maybe just to start, what have you learned about the merits and risks of pursuing any entrepreneurial endeavor with a partner versus doing so on your own? Oh, the merits and risks. So there, there were, um, Daniel, I kicked off our search fund in 2002. Um, we closed our deal in 2004. I would say that there were probably several times, both in the search phase and maybe in the first year, where we both were frustrated with each other and had pangs of regret over like, wow, I, I, I really am questioning whether I should have done this with a partner. And we were still learning each other. We were learning each other's you know, idiosyncrasies and foibles. And, and this was before we ran into behavioral profiles. I wish we knew this stuff back then, but we, we were trying to figure each other out. And that got better. I think on the, uh, you know, Pat, you know, we had four more years of running Ledco uh, after I said the, fir the first year of running the company was probably hard, where we really started getting um, our groove on together. And one of the things we did is we, we hired, we both joined Vistage, uh, which is a, a CEO peer advisory group. We joined different groups, but we had the same chair. So we met on different days and we could have our own, we could have our own group, but the chair was common and the chair knew us both and effectively behaved as our personal coach. And there were times when our coach would be like, hey, you know, you guys should really talk about X. You're both complaining about it. Uh, and I think you need to do some cycles on alignment. And it was so nice to have this, you know, relatively non-judgmental coach to push us in the right directions and fight through that. Um, and it was very valuable for us. We learned some, some great lessons. The, when we had this decision, you know, we sold Ledco in 09 and bought two other companies. Um, and we both went to go do it on our own thinking, I think we're like, oh, this will be easier. I will, um, we'll, we'll be more successful alone than or, you know, separate than we were together. But it, funny enough, we're both successful with, you know, business two and three, and we both invested in each other's businesses. But in 2014, we got together and we, I had exited shape up and he was about to exit exams off. We were like, let's get the band back together. We were better together than we were apart. Now, when we did, we both believe that to be true. When we were together, some of those weird idiosyncrasies and foibles were still there. You know, they just didn't go away. I think we just got more mature uh, about dealing with them and observing them and understanding them. And at the same time, maybe we even upweighted the benefits of having a partner more. Um, I think this is a very personal decision. It has 
some massive macro issues about power, control, fame, finances, mm-hmm. um, independence. Um, and there are, you can be very passionate about these issues. I, there was a time when I had to stop telling my wife about frustration, frustrating Daniel stories, because she was like, you need to get rid of Daniel. I'm like, no, I don't. She goes, well, all you do is bitch about him. And I was like, well, I'm just bitching to you about him. I, he's got some great other sides. <laughs> and so I was like, wow, I really need to back off on using my wife as the sounding board for, you know, for Daniel, because she wasn't observing both sides of the equation. I think it's really instructive for listeners to kind of go behind the curtains of an objectively very successful partnership and learn about, you know, all these friction points that you guys have had over the years. I mean, look, it's an incredibly kind of human thing to say, but I think there's a risk for the external party, you know, from the outside looking in, you know, looking at the results that you guys have generated and just, you know, thinking that it's all sunshine and rainbows behind the curtains, which of course is, is not the case. I'm curious, like for those uh, prospective entrepreneurs currently wrestling with the question of, do I partner or do I do it solo? Um, are there any introspection exercises, questions they should ask of themselves, frameworks they should think through, I don't know, maybe past professional or academic experiences that they can reflect on if they're not sure which route to take? Um, I don't want to give someone really bad advice here. Um, I, I, I think this is almost as important as who you're deciding to marry. And you know, similar thought needs to go into this. I mean, when you, you, when you think of traditional marriage, you know, you're, you're, you're sharing finances, you spend huge amounts of time together. Oftentimes you will raise children together and you get into macro issues. Who do we want these young people to be? And how do we want to discipline them and raise them and views on education? Similar things need to go into this. I mean, you're talking about how do you view risk tolerance? How important is the product to you? How do you like to spend money? You know, are you someone who likes only the nicest things? Or are you someone who could, you're like, you know, two file cabinets and a door makes a fine desk. Those things end up really frustrating the other person if you're if you're misaligned on on these issues you know i think there would be an opportunity uh for us to almost come up with a marital counseling program adopted for search funders (laughs) be like nope you failed the partnership test (laughs) you should do this solo um and i think people if if they look back at their history on uh uh their most successful teams, their most successful uh, accomplishments, um, the times in their life when they achieved uh, a flow state regularly. And I'm, are you familiar with flow state? I am, but maybe you can explain it for, for those listeners who, who might not be familiar with it. Yes, it's, it, it is a psychological state. Uh, I cannot pronounce the, uh, the author's name. It's yeah, very, it's a tough name to pronounce. <laughs> it's a tough name to pronounce. Look for flow state, but it's, 
it's a time you often see athletes getting in flow where they lose track of time and it, it's a it's a time that you'd often say is enjoyable but you're so engrossed in the work and it it is it it really means you're able to get a connection with the work that you do so if people can look back on their on their times where they high percentage of flow state were they alone were they with other people what were those working environments and and use use some of those questions to you know, because there's some people who clearly should be uh, solo searchers. And and there are people who would really benefit from ha- like me, like myself, like having having a partner. Um, we are better. He makes me better every day. Um, sometimes I want to punch him, but he still makes me better every day. And those are the things, uh, and I wouldn't really punch him. But you know, you get that feeling like it's, it's kind of like a sibling when there are times when you're like, wow, that person really knows how to push my buttons. Um, he really tries not to push my buttons. Um, and I really try not to push his, not that we still don't do it. Um, but I would, I would probably say it's, it's been my most successful adult relationship after, uh, you know, my spousal relationship with my wife. So for those folks listening who are already working with a partner, uh, maybe they're running a company, maybe they're searching for a company to buy, doesn't matter. What are some best practices you've learned over the years, maybe tools uh, or practices or rituals with respect to like maintaining healthy and functioning partnership on an ongoing basis? Like, for example, something that I teased out of a previous answer was perhaps a coach or an external party. Uh, would be a tool, uh, separate peer groups would be a tool. Any other tools or rituals or practices that you've learned over the years that you think others ought to adopt in like maintaining a healthy, high-functioning partnership? You know, we, we made a 10-bullet-point contract um, before we, um, you know, I think the first week of kicking off our search, before we raised any money. And we actually asked a lawyer to quantify or to, to legalize it. And he goes, I can't legalize. This is not, this is not, you're like, one of the bullet points is we want to remain friends. He goes, I, I, I can't do that job. So we just kept it around. We both signed it. Um, and, you know, it, it, there's something that happens if two people write stuff down and sign their name to it. Um, We've never referred back to it. I, I looked for it from when I wrote my book. I, I wanted to include, include it, but it was something that we, we both uh, remember doing. And some of those guiding about being ethical, about being fair to each other, about remaining friends that we were really committed to. It, it effectively was our vows. So I would do that. I would also consider joining a group like Vistage, Lifelong Learning. Um, it doesn't have to be Vistage. Um, and I, I think our dynamic where we had, we were in different groups but had the same chair was really worked for us for about three years. Um, and 
I actually ended up going after we sold the company, I went back to Vistage and, and Daniel didn't, he, uh, he didn't enjoy the actual Vistage process as much as I did. I've been in Vistage now for coming up on 15 years, I think. Um, but getting a mutual coach um, and someone that you both mutually respect, um, spend the money on it. You know, I wouldn't short, short the expense on that really be committed it's like a parent you know with two parents going to room disciplining a kid they should come out and you shouldn't know who won or lost the debate that was something we always tried to do for each other and i work really hard I, i've carried the title of ceo and all of our deal I, I make sure everyone knows that we're effectively co-ceo i carry the title only because i meet more people and i'm more externally facing but this is a partnership and we are in it together. And he's like, man, you go above and beyond to do that. I'm like, it's important to me. And it's important to us. And we are, we are a we, not an I. So I, I'm really careful about not using I, but a we. Now, okay, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> now, if you were to, <clears throat> excuse me, evaluate the respective personality profiles of yourself and your partner. What about these profiles might suggest such a enduring, healthy partnership? Is it the fact that they are just kind of complementary and you guys plug each other's holes? Is it something beyond that? And then maybe a follow-up question to that would be, would you contemplate partnering with someone who had a very similar profile to you, knowing what you know now? So I, I, I think our behavioral profiles, there was one thing that could have taken us out. Both of us have really high needs to put our thumbprint on stuff and put our ideas into practice. So his even more than, I, I'm like two and a half sigma. He's like three and a half sigma on this dimension. We you know, tend to be dominant. We want our ideas put into practice. We kind of need our our own way and we would not have been successful together if we didn't fight through on how to figure that out and core to that was we really respected each other in terms of intelligence opinion so we would listen to each other more than we would listen to someone else to hear the other person and we don't we don't always agree but you know, we get to a point of, I disagree, but I'll, I'll commit to your idea. Um, and obviously there has to be balance to that. So that was one dimension that could have taken us out. The other dimensions complemented really nicely. Um, I was extroverted. Uh, he was introverted. Uh, I was risk tolerant. He was more, more cautious. I was low attention to detail. He was higher attention to detail. Now we were both incredibly impatient, which we both like, but you feel it in our company. There has never been a Glassdoor review or an employee experience assessment that hasn't noted how fast we try and move. And that is because the two leaders are almost toxically impatient. And we've we've managed that. I mean, we, we like it of each other, but we've, 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 we mostly manage it well with our people. 
but I don't think I would work with someone with my exact profile. I have, I have many acquaintances with that exact profile um, and I respect that profile and I see aspects of myself in them, but I don't think we should probably work together in a partnership environment. As we uh, look to conclude here, Mike, this might sound like an, an odd question to end with, but before we hit record, you told me a story uh, about a decision that you made a few years ago to take your family on a one-year trip to the Caribbean. Um, I'd love for you to explain uh, to listeners what prompted that decision, uh, why you made it, and maybe what you learned from that experience. Uh, the, the the prompt was uh, I mean I, I grew up a lifelong sailor and you know obviously my my ability to teach life lessons to my children were, were enhanced in a boat environment so that was the context but it was it was really uh, attending the tenth reunion at Harvard Business School what struck me is how different the tenth was from the fifth at the fifth reunion everyone was just talking about my job my job my job and it was like you know, it was a game of one-upmanship and it was kind of nauseating. The, the 10th reunion, you know, people were having kids and they were just glad to see each other. And it was so different. And someone says, oh, each, the, 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 the culture, the persona, the vibe of each reunion group is different. And I was like, well, what are they talking about at the 25th? And what's the answer? Of course, you know, I want to know how to crack the case. And and they're like, oh, the answer is, they talk about work-life balance and the answer is to a person, almost everyone would spend more time on life than work. And so my wife and I drove home because she was also at HBS. We drove home from that reunion. And we're like, we gotta, we gotta work on that because I don't think we're doing very well at it. Um, we were both really driven and committed. And, and one of the ideas that we had on the, on the board was to homeschool the kids, live on a boat for a year and really get down to basics. And between companies, between ShapeUp and the Predictive Index, um, that opportunity presented itself. And their kids were six and eight. We got to, got on a boat, homeschooled the kids, took off, you know, all of our hair turned blonde and we got tan and probably in an unhealthy way. But we even considered after the year was coming to a close, we considered just sending the boat through the Panama Canal and heading, heading through the Pacific and just signing off. Um, and I, I was shocked we got that close to con even contemplating that. We didn't, um, and I'm glad we didn't, but um, we certainly enjoyed the perspective. And well, the kids, the six and eight, they, they remember it. Uh, but mostly through the stories and the family legend and the pictures. Um, but we got to teach them in a homeschooled fashion. And I have so much respect for people who homeschool and teachers in general for how patient you have to be and how, how, how hard it is to do well. But I know when my kids are bullshitting me and that was worth the price of admission. Um, and and has really helped us uh, cement a great family bond across the four. Now, at the risk of overgeneralizing, you know, most people do not associate a, an entrepreneurial career, a four-time CEO type of career with the concept of work-life balance. So I'm curious, 
after this kind of one big swing that you took, uh, which certainly sounded like, sounds like it was a very meaningful one, on like an everyday routine type of basis, what are some of the practices or rituals or tools that you've put into place with your wife and with your kids, maybe even with your partner to ensure that, you know, work does not uh, take precedence over life based on what sounds like a pretty profound lesson that you learned a couple of years ago? Yeah, I, I would I would do say two things, and these are very personal. I don't know if they'll work for everybody. One is, you know, making sure that I I, I still exercise, work out in some format five times a week. And, you know, I'm I'm, I'm sort of looking for if you can't if you can't put what's a, what's the equivalent of five hours into your own physical health, it's a sign that something's wrong with what you're doing. And now it may be at weird times and mine is in the five to 6 a.m. range when a lot of people aren't trying to bother me. But that has been really important. It has helped my energy level. It has helped my focus at work. Um, and uh, I, I, I do believe it keeps you younger physically, but I think it actually does mentally as well. The, the second thing is, uh, uh, my brother-in-law gave me a book one Christmas said uh, about, I think it's called Shopcraft as, as Soul Food or Shopcraft as Soul Craft. But it, it talked about the importance of people having, especially people who don't work with their hands, to have hobbies and, and work, work with something, any, anything. And I've, and I've always liked working with my hands. And I, I, I basically gutted a garage and turned it into a shop. And, you know, I'm constantly doing projects out there. And the projects have something that really help because instead of thinking about work and all your free mental time, you can actually think about those projects if, if they have a little bit of longitudinal nature to them, um, you know, building bigger stuff. And, and uh, actually, my, my son and I right now are electrifying a 1977 VW bus, and it's keeping us, <laughs> I would say I'm a little out over my skis on this project, but um, it's keeping us really busy and uh, is also just a, is a great bonding environment. That's awesome. That's awesome. I think it was a great place for us to conclude. Uh, Mike, you've got a fascinating career and uh, one, it's one that I look forward to continuing to follow. Uh, thank you for your time today and thanks for being generous uh, with your insights. For, we really appreciate it. Steve, thank you. You are a truly professional uh, interviewer. Your, your level of preparation, the thoughtfulness of your questions, your level of introspection, pushing deeper. Uh, you really have found your calling and I am glad our paths crossed and I look forward to also staying in touch. Thank you, Mike. Thanks, Steve.